the message this, uh, that I'll deliver this morning is a message that I recently put together with a view to the celebrations around Canada Day, as may become evident in the message itself. Our scripture reading is from Psalm 8, which we just sang together, as well as from Hebrews 2, and Hebrews 2, 5 to 18 is also our text for this morning. Psalm 8, let's read that together. To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with honor, with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And then we turn to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, which serves also then, the whole passage serves as our text for this morning. Hebrews 2 verse 5, hear the word of God. For he, God, has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 8, obviously. Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he, who does, not, he does not give aid to an angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, 
He's able to aid those who are tempted. This is the word of the Lord. There's no doubt uh, lots of material in there. Let's see how this can be unpacked in a way that we can appreciate the main lines of what the author is saying to us. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 43, stanzas 1 through to verse 6, stanza 6. Brothers and sisters, our, our text for this morning is going to make us do something that's actually not very popular today. The world is in the grips of uh, cancel culture. You've heard the term, perhaps. According to cancel culture, the idea is to cancel out any historical events that were not so ethical according to today's standards. And then the issue of residential schools has brought that all home for us, especially around the time of Canada Day. It came out just before that, all these questions of residential schools. and made us reflect on the question, wasn't there a better way to deal with the people who were actually native to this area of the world when we got here? Would we do it all the way, would we do it the way we did if we did it all again? The answer to the first question, I think, is yes, there was a different way. The answer to the second question should be no. No, we shouldn't do it the same way. So today, people proceed to tear down statues, burn churches, try to cancel Canada Day, and whatnot else as we try to rewrite history. It's really so much foolishness. What we need to do instead instead of trying to cancel culture and its historical origins, is to take note of history's biggest mistakes, make a reconciliation for them insofar as that's possible, and make every effort to ensure that these things are not repeated. But what we want to see today is this. In verse 10, most translations... Sorry, I didn't really see whether Hebrews does this. In the New King James, Hebrews 2, verse 10, it refers here to the captain of their salvation. Most translations translate that pioneer of their salvation. Jesus is the pioneer. Hebrews 12 talks about that. Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, the one who starts and the one who finishes it. And the word pioneer, of course, makes us reach back into our knowledge of Canadian culture. Pioneers were those who first moved into the new frontiers of North America and, and blazed the way for others to follow. They were leaders, people who took on risk for the sake of adventure, people to whom we are all somewhat indebted today. Without them, Canadian history, for good or for bad, would never have happened. Perhaps the word should be translated, as it is here, champion, or oh, captain, champion may be better, referring to the Lord Jesus as the champion of our salvation. After all, it was not Canadian history and the concept of pioneers, <coughs> but it was Greek history that the author of Hebrews had in mind when he wrote these words. And the word probably referred back to Greek mythology and how a Greek god would be a, a champion who would serve as a hero or a liberator who would open up a new path for the people. 
In any case, the word is more than the ESV founder, and it's more than the, the New King James captain. Jesus does not just found Christianity. Jesus blazes the trail. He makes it possible. He opens the way. Even as pioneers opened up the way for a new world, Jesus is opening up for us a glorious way to a new and better world that will make Canada look like nothing. The word comes back in Hebrews 12 verse 2, Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, the whole new world to which he is bringing us, we owe it all to him. The pioneers of Canadian and American history, they hoped for a new and better world. All kinds of platitudes about that were uttered. But what do you get when sinful people act like pioneers? You get a world that has sin and travesty and injustice all over it. And forgiveness and reconciliation becomes the only way. Soon it looks no better than the old world that they fled. There is only one who can do this. Bring us to a new world where everything is entirely new, where there will be none of these kind of regrets. And that is Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Let us consider God's word under this theme. Jesus is the pioneer who leads us to a world that's going to be free of rebellion, secondly, free of death, and thirdly, free of sin. Verses 5 to 13, free of rebellion. Verses 14 to 16, free of death. Verses 17 and 18, free of sin. Brothers and sisters, what do you say to a people who are overwhelmed and forsaken in a world when ungodly forces are piling up around them? That's what's happening when the author of Hebrews writes these words. He's probably writing to Roman Christians who are seeing persecution coming and seeing Nero who's starting to blame them for the fires that are destroying Rome. And he's writing to them to encourage them because they want to say, where is God in all of this? What do you say to them then? Here they felt alone. They felt that maybe they made a mistake. Maybe they should have just stuck with Judaism and never followed Jesus at all. Maybe life would be better because actually Judaism, there's freedom for Judaism in that Roman world, but there's no freedom for Christians, and so that makes life difficult. What do you say as a pastor, as a coach, to encourage them? You talk to them about what God is going to do, what he has already done, and where he is going. And that's what this passage is doing. It's talking about where God is going, where he's going to take his people. It's nowhere more apparent than in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews is saying. Because look, Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, is actually a little interjection. The, the man who wrote this was a, a pastor kind of first person who's already caught up in his message, and he gives this pastoral uh, exhortation to, 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 to beware 
and to not drift away and to pay attention to the Word because this Word is more important than all the Old Testament words. It's a little diversion, but he actually, in 2 verse 5, <coughs> he's carrying on the end of chapter 1 because the end of chapter 1, he's talking about angels who are sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And then 2 verse 5 continues that train of thought when it says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. That's really what he wants to talk about. How God subjected the world to come. How he's going to subject the whole world to come. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Of which we are speaking. The author of Hebrews is working with his Bible. He's thinking of Psalm 8. He, he recites it. What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you should care for him. Yet for a little while you made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8 is an expression of astonishment that God has bestowed so much honor upon humanity remembered and cared for by the Lord, created little less than a heavenly being, crowned with glory and splendor. <coughs> the man and the woman were given the status of creature king and creature queen with responsibility to order and subject all of creation. Psalm 8 is, of course, a reflection of Genesis 1. Stewardship over the earth was man's mandate. Subduing, ruling was his task. The beginning of the story was terrific. The sequel was awful. It was a story of human rebellion with the punishment of death and sin. But notice what part of Psalm 8 is of particular interest to this preacher. He seems to be particularly interested in light of his theme in that last part of Psalm 8 where he quotes, putting everything in subjection under his feet. <laughs> he highlights this verse in verse 8 and underscores its absolute character by using a double negative when he says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing that was not under his control. Everything is to be in control of man, is the intention of Psalm 8. He wants to emphasize this aspect of Psalm 8 verse 6. You put everything in subjection to him. Every part of God's wondrous creation, the heavens above, the sea below, the earth, everything around us was to be subject to us. Our task was to explore it all, to develop it all in the name of God and to his glory. But the pastor who writes these words immediately realizes that this is far from the reality in his day. He says so in verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He looks around. He sees Rome threatening the Christians. And he sees Christians not treated as kings and queens, but as criminals and convicts. And <coughs> today, too, what do we see of this? Is the world subject to you? Is, is your little world subject to you? It's not much different. Rather than ruling the prevailing times and forces... We fear the day when persecution comes for the people of God, for us. We do not yet see everything subject to us. The world is a sorry mess, and we're not always making it any better. 
But notice what this preacher, pastor of Hebrews does. He interprets Psalm 8 Christocentrically, Christologically. It's, it's key to what he's going to do. It's very important. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, we do not yet see. It's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. The Psalm 8 will be fulfilled. The fact that the decree has not yet been realized indicates the promised subjection of everything <coughs> as reference not to man in general, but to Jesus, whom God has appointed the heir of everything. You can, in fact, refer, you can, in fact, read these three lines of Psalm 8 entirely as references not to us, but to Jesus. And you've got to do that, because when you do that, you begin to see how it's going to be true of us. Hebrews, in fact, says, you made him, Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. It refers to his incarnation, his humiliation. You have crowned him, Jesus, with glory and honor. It refers to his exaltation, seated at the right hand of God today, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It refers to the fact that Jesus rules today. And everything doesn't look like it's in subjection to me and you, but it is in subjection to him. And it's going to be apparent at the end that only that which is in subjection to him will survive. <coughs> the preacher pastor interprets it all in such a way when he says, in fact, in verse 9, a verse which I consider to be one of the most delightful verses in all of Hebrews, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus, in subjection to man. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was crowned, was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor <coughs> because of the suffering of death. So what is he saying? He's saying, the realities that were spoken of in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 are going to and are being fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day coming when all of creation will be subject to, to, to Jesus, and if subject to Jesus, subject to those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a day coming when the world will be subject to him and subject to us. Do you not know that you will judge even the angels, Paul says? Jesus is the man in whom we see entirely restored the primal glory and authority which God bestowed on us and which we ruined. His experience of humiliation and exaltation guarantees that the absolute subjection of everything envisioned by the psalmist will be achieved. The exalted Son of God made the human condition his own in order to achieve for us the glorious destiny designed by God. Today, in the midst of God's creation, you can sing Psalm 8 with gusto. Then, in the new creation, when you see everything subject to Jesus, you will sing it with gusto that you never believed you had. Because what is our history but a history of rebellion? Rebellion against God, rebellion against the very things that are good for us and good for the world. Why do we need to read the ten words of the covenant every Lord's Day again? Because even if and when and even though we are converted and redeemed and renewed, we are just these rebellious people. 
Our problem is indeed that in our hearts we rebel against the good order which God has in mind for us. The problem starts with me. I don't bring everything in my life subject to, to Jesus and to me. <coughs> and so it happens everywhere. Whenever we would despise the rebellion of others, we are humbled with the realization that so our own hearts are inclined. But there's a day coming, Hebrews is telling us, when all this is over. We will see God's way is best. His order is in our best interests. A new heaven and a new earth is coming on which there will only be new people. People renewed through the cross of Jesus Christ. People who see, just see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And, and, and know there's a better day coming and there's hope for today and hope for tomorrow. Because we're going to live into all eternity worshiping this king who rules today. Through Jesus, the members of the house church in Rome, hiding from Nero, are finding their comfort. God knows what he's doing. Do you see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? Today, the people of Canada can be comforted when they sometimes despair of what rulers do and rulers decide. God knows what he's doing He's going to lead us to a better day, to a world that will make Canada and the United States and take the best countries in the world make look like nothing. Do you want to see a picture of what it looks like? Just look at Jesus in the Gospels. You want to see a picture of Jesus subjecting the whole world to himself? What does he do when he's in the boat, bobbing around, the disciples are afraid? He subjects the seas to his own power. Be still. They're still. What does he do when he sees people coming to him who are sick and ill and dying and despairing? He heals them one after the other because everything is subject to him. He had dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the wild beasts. He commanded the seas and the wind. He healed the sick, raised the dead. All of creation was subject to him. In that you see a foretaste of the kind of power he's going to display for us in the life to come. And that's why we, we should not lose heart and should not see all of this as just being future. It's not only true in the new heaven and the new earth. There it will be obvious, but it's true now. It's true in the good things that you experience, the good things we experience today. They don't come about by themselves. They don't come about because you're so strong and I'm so mighty. They come about because of the grace of God, because he's good and he's loving towards us. They come about even in the difficulties. Whatever pain and suffering the people of God experience now, and there's lots of it, maybe not here, but around the world as we recited in prayer, they're called to lift their eyes and see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And if you see Jesus with the eyes of faith crowned with glory and honor, you know we're going in the right direction despite everything else. You see, what the pioneers ultimately could not do, what the fathers of confederation ultimately could not do because they're all sinners, Jesus, the great pioneer, will do. Let's not cancel this history. 
this future history. Lead us to a world founded on the principles of justice and equity. Lead us to a world in which one race will not be trampled upon by another race that considers itself to be superior. New people composed of all races, all tribes, languages, rich and poor, young and old, will be around the throne giving praise to a glorious and gracious God and his wonderful son, our king. And then in verses 10 to 13, the preacher pastor makes it clear that Jesus did not just do this for his own benefit. No, he's united with his people. He does it for us. The objective, as verse 10 makes clear, was to bring many sons and daughters to glory. This is what the king is doing from the heavens. He's bringing many sons and daughters to glory. (coughs) Jesus is the great pioneer, the great champion who has all these things with him, all these people with him, whom he's bringing into this wonderful world where all rebellion and sin will be a thing of the past. He's one with us and we are one with him. Hebrews takes three Old Testament passages here, interprets them Christologically and ecclesiastically. Verse 11 verse says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's us, have all one source. In verse 12 then, he quotes from Psalm, 1, Psalm 22, Jesus is the one who strides into the assembly to declare God's name to his brothers and sisters and lift his voice in songs of praise to God. When the congregation gathers for worship, he's not ashamed to call them brothers, Hebrews says, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. In the first part of verse 13, he quotes Isaiah 8. Jesus is the one who expresses trust in God as the dominant disposition of his life. How does he do all these things? He just trusts in God. I will put my trust in him. The last part of verse 13, Jesus is the one who puts his arms around others and says in the words of Isaiah 8 again, here am I and the children God has given to me. He's bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That's what he's doing. The preacher pastor uses the words of both psalmist and prophet to impress upon his readers their oneness with Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ puts the complete trust in the Father in the most desolate moment of his life. Through that saving and transforming anguish and death, we become his brothers and his sisters, his sons and his daughters, even his children. Christ rejoices in the companionship of the people of God. These are the children God has given me. He did it for us. We all have one origin. And what was the purpose of all this? Jesus shared our humanity, not only so that he might free the world from rebellion, but also that he might destroy our adversary, the devil, who held the power of death. He frees us not only from sin, he frees us also from death. Look at verses 14 into 15. If I can read it for a moment in the ESV at least. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear, who through fear of death 
are subject to lifelong slavery. Here the image shifts somewhat. Jesus is not so much a pioneer as he is the champion who comes to the aid of his people. Now he's more like a person out of Greek mythology, a Hercules kind of figure who comes in and beats up the devil. He's locked in mortal combat with the fearsome adversary who held the power of death so that he can free the power of death and all those who are subject to it. Notice it's not just death, but the fear of death is what held them in bondage. It's really quite ironic that the very people who were destined to rule over all of creation should find themselves in the position of a slave, paralyzed through the fear of death. But this is the human condition. For the first readers, persecution was on the horizon. They all knew it might mean physical suffering and death. Even aside from persecution, all of life is followed by death, is it not? The baptism form says our life is a constant death. That's what you're headed to. But if Christians knew of comfort in the face of death, unbelievers in the first century were, were terror-stricken when they considered it. One example, Euripides, an early Greek writer, says about it, this other life is a fountain sealed and the deeps below us are unrevealed, and we drift on legends forever. Today as well, the fear of death is present wherever there is life. I recall during the time when I was a pastor decades ago in British Columbia and did a funeral, the local funeral director said to me, it's always a pleasure to do funerals for your church, for your people. I thought it a rather odd statement, so I asked why, and she said, other people, they come in here and they're angry and they're belligerent and so without hope that they're just unpredictable. But your people are always kind and at peace, and they just want the best for their dear ones who have passed on. So it is. Every grave, every death, Every funeral, every cemetery, every illness reminds us we're mortal. Death is the fear of the future. This, they say, is the true appeal of a, of a really late night party. It's a vain attempt to create a little bit of eternity. But behind everything that we fear, there is the fear of death behind disease, behind illnesses, behind COVID, behind war, behind residential schools. It all has to do with death. Death paralyzes. But this is the reality, brothers and sisters. We either confront death very early in our lives in the face of the cross and the resurrection, knowing Jesus as our only comfort, not only in life, but also and especially in death. We want to instill this in the lives of young people. You have comfort in the face of death. And when they're, when they're young, they don't even think about it because death is far away. It's for old people. Well, you get old and you realize 
death is on the horizon, and maybe not so old, and you realize the doctor tells you death is on the horizon. We will either confront death and stare it in the eye through the cross of Jesus, or we will fear and cower and hide and weep uncontrollably in the face of this horrible enemy every day of our lives. It is indeed a lifelong slavery. Jesus is the one, the only one, who will finally bring us to a world where the fear of death is no more. He became locked in mortal combat with a fearsome adversary who held the power of death. He overthrew the devil in order to release those whom this evil tyrant had enslaved. Jesus is the champion who secured the deliverance of his people through the suffering he endured. He arose and he alone as the keys of death and Hades. But he leads us to a world not only free of rebellion and free of death, how much we need that, but also free of sin. Let's think for a few minutes about the last verses, 16, 17, and 18, to read those verses again. Verses 16, 17, and 18 of Hebrews 2. For who having heard rebelled, oh, sorry, that's chapter 3. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and high priest in things pertaining to God, and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. What I find striking in these verses is that Hebrews is making the point that it's not enough for Jesus to just go off and suffer and die somewhere to bring about redemption. <coughs> no, he must suffer and he must die as one of us. The argument is because he is concerned about us, not about angels, but about us, he has to become one of us, one with us, our representative, our mediator. The high priest is chosen from among the people. He can represent them effectively only because he enjoys solidarity with the people, only because he himself is one of them. He had to be made like his brothers. And not just a little bit, but Hebrews says, in every respect. Jesus needed to resemble his brothers, just like Today, you say, you remind me of your brother. Jesus resembles us so that he could provide atonement for sin and a sacrifice to death. Jesus' own encounter with a sinful, hostile world makes him a merciful high priest who can offer comfort and strength to his brothers and sisters and who now face a sinful, hostile world Whatever the situation, then and now, Jesus' own encounter with the horrors of death makes him the faithful high priest who can offer comfort and hope to those who face the prospect of death. We'll say more about that this afternoon. It's the only way to deal with sin. It's the only way that a new world can come into being. You can't sweep sin under the rug. You can't do that in your home and prosper and be blessed. You can't do that in the world either. If death is the fear of the future, guilt is the fear of the past. And panic strikes when we begin to realize that that guilt, if we don't deal with it, 
just might go with us into that future. Panic strikes when we begin to realize that guilt might just go with us into the future. And it will if you don't deal with it here through the cross of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, realize this is the only way you can go into that future that's coming in Jesus Christ. It's going to be a new world. If it's going to be a new world, you and me, we have to be new people. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Why? Because you can't bring something old and something sinful into a new world. We must be born anew. Conversion is dealing with your past and coming into a better future already now. The big question of the Scriptures is, do you want to be part of that world without rebellion, without death, without sin? What a world it will be. Do you want that? The only way is to embrace Jesus, the pioneer, the champion, our Savior, the one who gave his life great expense completely, for you. Fess up to the past, embrace him now, and enter a new and glorious future. It's true of you, it's true of me, it's true also of our country. Probably it's going to be declared today an election's coming. Who are we going to elect? What's going to happen to us? Our country needs to come to the message to the realization that reconciliation with the native people of this land will not just come about by speaking empty words or by doling out millions or billions of dollars. It will only come about when we say, and say it humbly, this was sin. Sin, not just to a people. Sin, not just to children. Sin in the face of God, the holy, glorious God. We must know and acknowledge there was a better way for us to make an entrance into this land. There was a better way for us to form a nation. The attempt to make one nation from sea to sea. It's inscribed. You can tra travel to Ottawa and you can see it when you walk up the stairs to the parliament buildings. Psalm 72. From sea to sea, the dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Really? Confess it before him. This was not all done in subjection to him. The attempt to make one nation from sea to sea was not really done under the dominion of the one whom we see crowned with glory and honor in the heavens above. Realistically, though, that future ideal world we all hope for will not come about unless and until it happens through the one who is today crowned with glory and honor. Our comfort is not just that he will reign then. No, he reigns now. And he will bring us into that future. We see him with the eyes of faith. We see a world of rebellion and of death and of sin. Not everything is subject to Jesus or subject to us. But we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the one without whom it would never happen. He shapes that world. He forms it. We owe it to him. Our brother, our savior, our priest, 
our champion, our pioneer. Let's follow 